Hello everyone, this is Ari in the Air, welcome back to the podcast. Today, I've got a very, very interesting conversation with David Salvage. He is an empath and an intuitive empath, which is a really interesting combination of words that in the beginning of this episode, I have him describe what that means and what that's like for him. But at large, this conversation is about empathy and it is about our human ability to sense other people's emotions and their emotional state in a number of different ways. One way is that we can just do it, as David says, through the ether, that the emotions just transfer from one person to the other, even when we're not physically next to one another. Another way is by communicating verbally, and we get into the pitfalls of each of those. This conversation showed me a lot about empathy, actually, and how I think of it myself, how I use empathy in my philosophical coaching practice, how I use it with my friends and my family, and how I expect people to empathize with me. Um, It was informative, and it changed some of the ways that I think about this subject. And for that, I'm super grateful. I had a blast on this conversation. It was super good. Um, Yeah, I think you guys are going to really enjoy it. So, welcome. Thanks so much for being here. Please consider subscribing on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash airy in the air. And check out my philosophical coaching practice. I have five slots left and I will gift you the first call for free. There is a link on my website, airyintheair.com in the coaching tab for you to schedule this free philosophical coaching call. I hope you'll take me up on that. They're super fun and have been very helpful for both myself and my clients. So you should definitely check that out. Without further ado, here's a little bit of music and a very cool conversation with David Salvage. Thanks for being here with me. Thank you, Ari. So, I kind of want to start with this story of this kind of this origin story that I've heard a little bit about of how you came to find yourself as an empath and what that means and your history using it as a performance art. This is all very interesting to me, and I think this will be a great jumping-off point for us. 
up until about two years ago, very regularly, I would get in front of audiences, put myself in a chair with an empty chair next to me. Then I would invite people from the audience to sit across from me in the empty chair, close my eyes, take the audience member's hand, allow their feelings into my body, consciously and deliberately, and then express out loud in words and also through my body what I feel they're feeling. Mm. This was a kind of psychic performance art. I called it um, empath, intuition as performance art. Sometimes I got things spectacularly right and people would really be in a kind of wonder or awe. Sometimes I got things wrong and sometimes I got things right and people would say I got things wrong and sometimes I would get things wrong and people would say I got things right. Mm. It wasn't such a matter of how accurate is this strange man in attuning to the emotions of others using magical powers. It was more about um, the question of how porous are we? Mm. What is possible? And I really enjoyed skeptics. So if people would raise their hand and say, I know you're just doing a cold read and you can see how people are feeling and then you, you're good with words. So you just say whatever you see and then they go, oh my God, because people are so desperate to feel seen. And I would really appreciate those kinds of critiques and play with them. So that was the performance art. I want to double click on this though, because you basically... Um, yeah, I want to, I want to double click on this, this, uh, this critique of calling it magic or just saying, well, obviously humans just in our nature, we're quite attuned to each other. And as you say, we are porous. We know it, we can look at each other's faces and body language and, and we can get a lot from that. And then to articulate that is not, is no form of magic. So what are the I guess, oh. tell me how you play with that. Maybe it is a form of magic too. Maybe the mm. line between magic and not magic is porous as well. Uh -huh. So how often do we really sit with someone forgetting whether we're an empath or we have intuitive superpowers? Mm -hmm. How often do we actually just sit with someone and really try to understand what they're feeling mm -hmm. and really try to put words to what they're feeling in ways that feel true to them? Mm. Maybe therapists do it. A fair amount, but outside of a therapeutic context, it's pretty rare. Mm -hmm. So there's something magical even about the intent to genuinely attune to somebody. Mm, I so agree. Uh, but beyond that, I do believe, uh, somewhere between strongly believe and know, that emotions travel through the ether from one person to the other. Mm-hmm. And I strongly believe, maybe even know, that emotions do that whether or not there's any visual content to match it. Mm -hmm. So I can walk into a room and sense what somebody is feeling before I've even seen them. And many of us have had the experience too. Let's say you're in a relationship and uh, before your partner even gets home, you sense their mood. You haven't even heard their footsteps on the landing yet, but you already know what they're feeling and you're already adjusting. Mm -hmm. 
So it, it strikes me as both true and meaningful that emotions travel in this way. And one of my side missions in life is to wake people up who are open to it, to that reality. And as part of that mission, it feels really important for me to integrate the skeptical perspective, mm -hmm. the perspective that unless you can see it, smell it, taste it, touch it, or hear it, it's not real. Mm -hmm. uh, I like to welcome the skeptic into my process and say, I hear you and see you, but can you be with me in the possibility that your worldview is maybe a touch narrower than it needs to be. And I don't need you to see me as great, but I want you to look openly at what it is I'm trying to show you. The, the thing that you said that I think I most love there is that there's a certain kind of magic in the genuine intent of attuning to someone's emotions. Mm-hmm. And I think that we would have to, to take a fully critical opinion of the ability for us to feel each other, we would have to ignore a lot of the signals that we get in everyday life. Uh, like you mentioned, feeling your partner's emotions before they come through the door. Also, most people have befriended twins in their life. And twins are just naturally closer to one another. And the attunement that they share emotionally is a is something that we almost think of as like normal. You're like, yeah, of course. Mm -hmm. it's, like, it's your twin. Of course you can feel your twin when you're not around them. Um, and the cynical view that that manifest reality is merely physical, that it's only atoms and matter is, uh, you know, as Ken Wilber calls it, flatland. Um, it's a very narrow view of our existence and doesn't account for consciousness and this, the the thing, the, mm -hmm. that other thing that we try to point to. Um, mm -hmm. So I like your, I like this idea that you want to integrate the critical, the cynical, the unimpressed. There's also, I just want to go back to that thing that you said that I just love so much. There's, there is a certain magic in just the intuition or just the intention of trying to attune to someone else's feelings genuinely. That is something that I have learned a lot through nonviolent communication, which is something that you do verbally. You invite someone to share with you and then you set your intention on really listening until they feel understood. You continue reflecting back to them. Is this what I'm hearing? Yes. Okay. And you, you know, you can help them uh, 
feel their emotions, essentially, just through a verbal dialogue. This is part of a coaching practice. This is a part of a therapeutic practice. So many ways I could go from right here. Would you like the origin story? Sure. Let's get back to that. Uh, I'm not attached to, to giving it. Only if you want it. I'm happy either way. Well, I think, I, honestly, I think that's enough origin story right now. The fact that you would go on stage and invite people to who are total strangers to you to sit, hold their hands, close your eyes, and try to tune into their emotions and then verbalize them. That's an amazing, mm -hmm. that's an amazing um, practice. What an interesting practice. It makes me want to try. That's fun. Yeah, it seems like it. And, and so I guess I, I'm still kind of on this cynical, skeptical thread here. And I think the thing that comes up for me is the difference between astrology and the Enneagram. Are, are you familiar with the Enneagram? Mildly. Uh, uh, familiar enough to know that I'm a four wing five, I think, maybe, <laughs> okay. but I'm not sure. Okay, so the Enneagram I'm is not based, sure. Yeah, it's, it's like, um, says there's essentially nine main personality types, and the personality types derive from how your psyche develops as a response to your environment in, mm -hmm. the, in the simplest way. Astrology tries to... And this is, I'm, I'm sure I'm going to slander both of these things through my own experience, but this is basically how these things have landed in me in my life is that astrology, someone says they, they start knowing me and they say, Oh, when's your birthday? Oh, you're a Capricorn. And the difference is that the Enneagram is a tool for self-discovery. The Enneagram is a tool that I use. I take a test that helps point me in the right direction. And then I read the different types and what I identify with most is what I am. It's a way for me to, to verbalize how I see myself and tell you how I see myself so that you can help understand me and see through my lens, essentially. Astrology feels like people trying to tell me how I am. And the Enneagram is me trying to tell people how I am, which I bring this up because the idea that you would intuit my feelings sounds really fun, but I would, but I'm curious the, I guess the, the accuracy part that you bring up is very interesting to me because I have found in my own experience that when I try to empathically intuit people, I get it wrong. And by getting it wrong, I basically slow myself down in actually understanding them. And so I guess I'd love to hear from you. Let's start with what is it like? What, do, what is it like when you close your eyes, you hold their hands? What are you feeling? What do you feel? What is it like when you get it spot on and also how has this informed other modalities 
like a verbal exchange where you're inviting someone to share with you what their emotion, what it's like to be them. Tell me the, like the differences of those two things. I'll try. There's something that seems really important to you that is important to me, but less so. There's something that seems really important to you around individual sovereignty, mm. that people are entitled to their own experience first and foremost. And let's be real careful about anyone like David or worse, an annoying astrologer helicoptering in with theoretical truth bombs that even if they're right, which they rarely are, risk disconnecting the person from him or herself and putting, giving the, the truth bomber a kind of false authority. Hmm. And I share that concern that you have, and I share the value of sovereignty, but not as much as I don't feel it is as important as you do. Um, I feel like it has its place too, but it is not the end-all be-all. So I'll give you an example where it's been really, really helpful for me to feel what the other person is feeling and say it, even though they don't agree. Um, and to hold true to my experience of their experience, irrespective of what they think about themselves. <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah, I do that in performance art, but I think that's a particular case and maybe less useful than the example I'm about to give. Uh, a friend of mine with whom I have a very open and trusting relationship is communicating something about our working partnership that isn't clicking for her. And she's going through all the reasons it isn't clicking for her. And I'm, I'm listening and I care. And I ask her, well, what are you feeling about that? And she says, I'm feeling sad that it's not working. And I said, I, is there anything else you're feeling? And she said, no, just sad, maybe a little hopeless. And I said, I feel you feeling anger. I feel you are angry with me. And she says, no, I'm not. I'm really not. And I say, no, I actually feel your anger right now in my body. Meaning, I didn't say this part, but I could have. I feel this subtle heat in my stomach that I am picking up from my collaborator here. And I'm attuned enough to what my own anger feels like that I am able to disentangle what might be my anger from my experience of her anger. I am confident enough to assert that to her. I'm not asserting it, I hope, like the astrologer in your story earlier, mm. whose intention seems to be to put you in a box so mm. that she feels validated about her astrological superpowers. That is ugly. So I'm not saying I feel you feel angry so that my friend can see that I see her better than she sees herself and my ego is validated and then she mm -hmm. becomes attached to my knowing and we enter into a toxic kind of dynamic. That's not what I'm doing. I'm really in the relationship with her and I'm saying I'm seeing something in you that you are not seeing in yourself. I'm saying it with 
compassion, but also with a kind of firmness. And there's enough trust in the dynamic where she starts feeling around, which she otherwise might not have. And she doesn't even get to it at first. And then a couple of days later, she says, you know, I was really angry at you, really angry at you. Mm -hmm. And I believe that my saying that opened the door to her exploration. And it also allowed me to be in a kind of integrity in the dynamic because I was engaging with her as if she was angry with me. I felt it. And so mm -hmm. there's a part of me that's on defense accordingly. Mm -hmm. So if I'm just playing pretend that she's not angry, just because she's playing pretend that she's not angry, we're having a false relationship and I don't want them. Mm. Mm. I love that. That's beautiful. I also want to say that I think what you're, you're valuing sovereignty, I like it, but I just want to acknowledge how few people do look into themselves, how few mm. people actually mm. engage authentically mm. with what they're feeling, how much people are used to being told what's going on inside themselves, mm -hmm. and how terrifying it can be for somebody who has a completely outward orientation of life to be asked the question, what's really going on inside mm. you? What's yeah. happening? Mm. And when we ask that question without acknowledging how terrifying that is, um, we're actually causing more of a disconnect between themselves and themselves. Hmm. So sometimes if the dynamic is just right, there's value in saying, this is what I see going on inside you. Hmm. It allows the part of them that is so afraid to be sovereign to relax. And it gives their, their existing ego structure a place to land and to understand themselves better. Hmm. But it is delicate. And definitely, if you're going around telling people what they feel like I do, uh, you do have some responsibility to be aware of all of the pitfalls and traps. Mm. Hmm. This is very interesting. I think that what you just said clarifies something for me, which is, as I describe the difference between the Enneagram and the astrology, There is a earnestness that delineates those two approaches in my mind, which is one is that I'm trying to tell you how you are so that I can impress you mm -hmm. or impress myself. And there is another that is a genuine openness to being attuned to another person's experience. And I've had astrologers who are genuinely open to my experience and who offer their understanding of astrology mm. genuinely to help me. Yeah, I've never met an astrologer. I just meet the people who are typically between 20 and 30-year-old girls who ask my birth date. Yeah, well, maybe they're just flirting or, or maybe they're... <laughs> no, but and I, it's not even a shtick that I am trying to get into. I'm just, I use it as a as an example of this earnestness that we're talking about. And um, the clarification that you offered is that there is an earnestness in speaking to what you feel from the person that is something that you shouldn't push down. When you feel yes. 
their anger. And if you repress that, and if you just take, if you let your own experience be bowled over by the fact that she said that she's just feeling sad and only sad, then there's a, there's a, you know, you, you rupture the integrity of that interaction at least in yourself. And I also yes. like that what you said was that you're not trying to tell her that she's angry because you know it and you're trying to rub her nose in it or you want her to be impressed that you can read her better than she can read her. But there's just an acknowledgement of your porosity that is picking up something that is at one level you're you're feeling it. And at the second level, it's affecting you. Like you feel your defensiveness because you were experiencing her anger. And so to not say that is disingenuous. So the clarification that you gave there was that there is a earnestness in intuiting their emotions rather than just taking what they say as the only means of sensing what is happening yeah. emotionally in the other person. Yep. It's, it would be um, ludicrous to take what people say as the only way you get information about what's going on in them. Mm. You would, you would run into wall after wall. So we are always taking in information beyond what people say to attune to them or to protect ourselves or to get what we want. And so to me, uh, healthy relating means surfacing that too, surfacing the subtle things I'm picking up on about you so that we're both operating with the same information. Mm -hmm. mm, I really like that. And I also appreciate your, what you sense about my own value of sovereignty. I also really value my own emotional intelligence and my own ability to sense into what's real for me. And I'm very articulate and can express that pretty well. So I think that um, I like to be asked how I am. Mm. People are like, how are you? Yeah. And I'm like, I'm quiet. And they're like, hello? I'm like, I <laughs> What do you want me to do? Like, how, how do you want me to answer without shutting the fuck up for a second? Like, mm -hmm. <laughs> that's amazing. I really like this. I think you're teaching me, uh, you're teaching me something here about empathy. This is another layer. Cause I think I, also, the... I, I want to acknowledge though, too, that my ego is not completely quiet in this. So in that dynamic with my friends, I'm pretty clean. I really am oriented around what will make the dynamic flow better. But when I am on stage, mm. I am unabashed in enjoying <laughs> the fact that I can do something that very few people can do mm. and that I want you audience to have some appreciation of it. Mm. I could wish that part of my ego away, but it's still there. So I do better to acknowledge it. And what's that like? What's it like on stage? What does it feel like when you close your eyes and hold the person's hands? What do you feel? What is it like? What's your, is there a technique? How do I do it? Um, 
Well, maybe there's a way in which you do it already. And so before I give you a technique, uh, I'll just ask, do you ever sense you are feeling other people's emotions in your own body? More than I would like. Okay. Have you ever made an effort when you feel that you're feeling somebody else's emotions to really pay extra special attention to the quality of that emotion? Yes. Then the only next step you're missing is putting that into words. Yeah. And then if you want to go all the way into extra credit, uh, I do this extra special theatrical thing where I allow my body or really um, invite my body to express the feelings that I feel uh, they're interesting. feeling. Interesting. It doesn't require effort exactly. It's more just that my body will naturally contort itself into a certain position based on an emotion. So talking about anger earlier, let's say I'm feeling somebody's anger and I'm like, let me just express that with my mm -hmm. body and I don't have to try. My fists will clench, yeah. my jaw will tighten, all contract like a boxer ready to throw a punch if you saw me. So my I will just show them their emotion through my body. Mm. Then another cool thing that happens sometimes is that the body is smarter than the mind. And so I will ask my body to mm. express what it is it feels they're feeling. And through the positions that my body takes, I then learn mm. what it is they're feeling. Ah, interesting. So the body amplifies the emotion and then I can understand what the emotion is. Whereas if I'm just sitting cross-legged and normal, Maybe I'm having a subtle feeling of heat in my stomach, but I wouldn't identify that as anger. I don't know what that is. And then I say, body, what is this? And my body clenches. And now I want to punch somebody. Oh, I'm angry. Uh-huh. Yeah, it's like, you know, what I heard you say was that the body is smarter than the mind, but it, it's like, it's a different, it's a different smart, right? Like you're getting a, you're getting a different kind of download by enacting it, by embodying hmm. what it is. Like your head takes it in and then your body enacts it out and kind of like plays with it. And it like, you can kind of see it from a different angle. You can kind of, yeah, that's really interesting. What a fun game to play on stage with people that sounds so fun um i think that you know the the skeptics around intuitives and channeling are um abundant hmm. and i'm pretty skeptical myself but the idea of empathy that humans are connected to one another and that our emotions and our selves are porous and we can transmit how we feel without our words. And beyond the signals of pheromones, facial expression, body language, there's also another energetic mm -hmm. that... Um, connects us i of course of course and you know 
like I said earlier, I think we would have to ignore a lot of the signals that we've picked up in our lives as strange, unexplainable experiences. Um, you know, and there's stories of people, especially when things are really radically bad, you know, when someone dies and they have this, like, like through the ether, you kind of like have something weird. Mm -hmm. You know, I had it just the other day. I was like, God, why do I, I can't like, why do I feel that way? And I like, I like talk to a very close person to me. And she's like, I'm so sick. I have COVID. I'm so sick. I'm like, Oh my God. Whoa. Am I like been feeling you all day? It's hard for me to, to go all the way to knowing on that kind of thing. Um, but I don't feel like I necessarily need to, I guess I wonder, I want to hear from you what you think it's like to be on stage with you. And that's like the specific and the more general is what does empathy feel like? Why is this important to us? It really varies person to person what it's like to be on stage with me. Uh -huh, there enough. is no, there is no generic answer. Mm -hmm. Imagine the widest possible range of reactions. And I have seen it. I have seen people just be lit up so excited to be in front of an audience and absolutely delighted to have emotions that you would imagine they wouldn't want anyone to see their feeling exposed in front of everybody. Huh. I have seen people feel like it's the best moment of their lives. And then I've had people who regret the minute they sit down, having sat down. Mm -hmm. I've had um, people who walked off the stage in the middle of a reading. Um, because they really didn't want what I was saying to be heard by anybody or they were ashamed. I've had people say, how dare you tell me that's what I'm feeling? Even when the thing I'm feeling they're feeling is angry and the next words out of their mouth are, how dare you? <sighs> so everything, everything happens. And that's part of the fun. What does empathy <laughs> feel? Yeah, that's the performance art part of it yeah this is juicy yeah i mean so many so many great moments if you want some um oh, one's coming to mind it's it's uh dangerous to share because it it's uh culturally sensitive but i'll tiptoe up to it anyway because it's so fascinating <clears throat> um a woman sits down across from me i close my eyes and I feel this feeling that I've rarely felt before and certainly don't have it in myself, a sense of I just want to get out of my skin, mm -hmm. this sense of just take off all my skin and ugh, replace it. it. It felt almost physical, not just metaphoric, but also metaphoric too. And I'm, and I'm saying this to this woman and, and then I open my eyes and she's, she's very moved by what by what I've said, I see that it's resonated. And, and she said, you know, I've, I've had that feeling my whole life. And then I transitioned from a man to a woman and I still have that feeling. <sighs> um, 
That was a really moving moment. <laughs> it's almost like if you start analyzing it, you risk getting in trouble, but it happened just like that. Um, what does empathy feel like? I have a great, I have a great answer to that question. That's, that's here. I think empathy feels like the other person. That's what empathy feels like. Say more. Empathy feels like the experience of the other. Mm. <clears throat> so sitting across from that woman, I felt what it was like to want to be in a different body. Yeah. I felt that. It, it, I, I am a, uh, heterosexual male, uh, utterly comfortable in where I sit in my maleness and in my sexuality. I'm utterly privileged in those ways and I've had zero struggles around it. Uh, for me to really feel what it's like to be this woman would strike some as impossible. But I am here to assert, and I will not back down from the assertion, that I did feel what it was like to be her. Um, so there are ways in which I cannot fully experience her experience. Mm -hmm. I didn't spend the first 50 years of my life feeling like I was in the wrong body. And all of that suffering and discomfort is not something I can easily relate to. But I was able to feel her feelings more than I think most people imagine we can. And it, that that's a maybe an extreme example. There are a million subtler and just as valid ones. One of the most challenging emotions for me to empathize with, i.e. for me to really feel the experience of fully, is giddiness. Giddiness is an emotion that is as far away from my own natural disposition as anything. I don't think I felt giddy like maybe in my whole life on my own, maybe little flashes. My body does not hold giddiness easily. So there I am sitting across from a 14-year-old girl who is so giddy to be a part of whatever is happening. And I'm feeling this giddiness and it's like it's it's painful it was literally more painful even though her experience of giddiness was pleasant she uh -huh. was enjoying herself but my experience of her giddiness was painful because my body is not built to experience it so i can only hold it for a few seconds at a time but there i am feeling the giddiness of a 14 year old girl uh, uh excited to be on stage with me giddy so there's another example empathy there felt like giddiness hmm and I guess, what's the other side? What's the feeling? Because I, what's the feeling of being empathized with? Hmm. Hmm. Well, I think uh, it can vary, but I feel when I when I feel someone feels me or sees me, something in me relaxes. Mm -hmm. Like a gentle soothing quality to the experience. We're usually in our culture, we're not meant to be doing this. Our bodies are not built for this, but we live like this. We are usually holding our own experience all the time alone. Uh -huh. 
we are us- we are under the unfortunate illusion imposed upon us by a toxic culture that it is our job to take care of our own emotions and our job alone so when somebody is really in it with us fully really feeling us or maybe even just intending to be with it uh-huh. striving authentically to be with it even if they can't reach it something in us just relaxes we're carrying all of us more than we are meant to carry so mm-hmm. there's a relief in being seen and then something else can happen too um depending on what it is that they are holding with you. So if some, let's say I'm very, let's say I'm grieving and I've lost somebody in my life and somebody sits there with me and they really feel what it's like to be me, then the grief moves more. The energy flows more. So it's, it's not only the relief at being held and seen, it's also the, the increased flow of our emotions through our system made possible by the fact that somebody is regulating our emotions with us. Hmm. In a way, when I felt my friend's anger, um, she felt a bit defensive, which is normal when you're told something's going on inside you that you don't feel, but there's enough trust in our relationship that she was willing to investigate. And that investigation gave space for her anger to flow. So mm-hmm. my feeling her anger made more space for her anger. I was genuinely inviting her anger. I wasn't saying, oh, you're angry. Something's wrong with you. You shouldn't be angry, in which case I might have blocked the flow. But that wouldn't be really, that wouldn't be very empathetic. Well, it wouldn't be very compassionate. I love the idea that Feeling, the feeling of being seen is like a relief. Mm-hmm. And I also agree with your cultural observation that we have a misconception as to whose responsibility it is to manage our emotions. And I guess maybe not whose responsibility, but like exclusivity on whose responsibility it is. And I think that the culture is slowly changing and as therapy and more therapeutic modalities are becoming more Mm. widely socially acceptable, less shameful in general. I think that therapy is a less shameful thing now than it was five years ago. And, and as you go back, I think that um, continues to be the case. I, I agree, but that's that's a quarter step in the direction I'm talking about, because even in the therapeutic context, we're operating under the myth that I'm responsible for my emotions until and unless I bring it to you. I'm hiring you to work with me to co-regulate, which uh-huh. is progress, and it's certainly not shameful, but it is a far cry from the world I am craving which is one where we understand from the get-go that your feelings matter, my feelings matter, and the only way we are going to function together is if we help each other feel our feelings. Hmm. That is a completely different paradigm than the one we're in. I agree. And it, it's, 
maybe therapy being less shameful is a step in that direction, but it feels like a baby step. I agree. I agree. And I think my intuition here is that you're in my vision of what this looks like um, in a fully embodied utopia is pretty similar. But I, I guess I'd love to express to you where I see us right now and this movement that I just described and how it cracks the door open. So I, a long time ago, realized and verbalized that I wanted all of my relationships to be therapeutic, that, mm, that's cool. all, that all of my relationships would be emotionally safe. And through that emotional safety, I would be able to experience myself deeper and deeper. That's super cool. <laughs> <laughs> What I'm finding is that in our current culture, even with this misconception that it is your job to regulate your emotions, and if you can't do it yourself, you need to hire help in the form of a therapist, mm -hmm. that just opens the door a little bit because the experience of therapy is where it is one, it is their first... <laughs> It is so many people's first experience of what an emotionally safe relationship feels like. I'm, I'm, as you can see, my, my, my body doesn't like that story very much. Okay. Well, stay with me for but, one second. Okay. I'll stay with you. So as people go into therapy and they start working with their stories and they start working with their emotions and they start getting help acknowledging what they're actually feeling by someone else listening and reflecting back to them what their experience is and what their story about the experience is and what their emotions behind the experience are, they start to open up that tube, the tube that you're talking about where other people help you experience your emotions more. So it starts mm -hmm. to flow because before that in our, to, to use your words, the toxic culture that makes you regulating your own emotions, all your job. Mm -hmm. That is a place where the tube gets clogged. Mm -hmm. It gets stuck. And we just like, we can't, nothing moves. And so the experience of therapy is a lot of times people's first experience of having someone else help get the flow of emotions through their being moving. Once they have that experience, they see the possibility for their friendships to be therapeutic and for their partnerships to be therapeutic, not just something that creates the stress that the therapy helps alleviate, but actually something that they, they realize that there are modalities, there are ways of being, there are ways of communicating that can help each other experience their emotions and help the tube get unclogged and flow and get more and more bandwidth over time. Mm -hmm. I think so, there's, there's truth in what you're saying. And so how I see that in uh, the broader cultural context is that 
it's a, I totally agree that I think it's a baby step and it's maybe a quarter step and it Mm -hmm. might not even be totally in the right direction, Mm -hmm. but it is like opening the door that my experience is not shameful and it's something that I need to talk about and it's something that I need help. I have to admit that I need help in processing my own emotions and the experience of having someone who earnestly will try to feel with me or be with me and help me see what I'm both what I'm seeing and what I'm not seeing. I begin to trust that earnestness in relationship is possible. And through earnestness in relationship that like some kind of therapeutic soothing is possible. And that kind of like that's the that's what I see as the quarter step. That's what I see as the tenth of a step, the slight opening of the door that maybe more relationships are therapeutic than just a explicitly therapist relationship. I hear you. And I agree with you. There's a there's a way in which um your story though, uh like it, it touches something in me that hurts. Mm-hmm. And so I can't fully meet you in your story, even though my brain can totally understand why your story makes sense. And the the thing that hurts in me is the compartmentalization of healing that the therapeutic context assumes so i'm with you on everything you're saying except that oftentimes the therapist is not fully presence and Mm -hmm. not simply because not simply because they're not a good therapist they might be a very very good therapist but there is a financial exchange built into the dynamic Mm -hmm. then there are all sorts of um boundaries built into the dynamic and there's this artificial one-way flow Mm -hmm. and what the patient learns on some level is that safety is something you buy Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. from somebody who's trained to provide it Mm -hmm. and that reinforces a paradigm that my entire being revolts against Mm -hmm. and that and it also brings up a fear in me uh, which is that oftentimes it seems to me that our toxic culture will deliberately allow for the release of the energies and the emotions necessary for it to persist because were the doors to be shut completely the whole thing would implode hmm. so there about that so you'll start seeing you see um uh when you when you talk about not you like when we when we start seeing in more and more companies an emphasis on empathy or emotional intelligence and every once in a while i get called in to talk to it 
at an organization, or you see advertisements for Talkify, or on Instagram, or even uh, on television, and now all of a sudden it's getting more and more normalized. We need to make space for people's feelings, and it sounds really good. Oh yeah, like that's what I want. That's what you want. This is progress. Yay. But the unspoken condition of making space for people's feelings is the existing power structure that continues to not make space for people's feelings and whose principles are not really available to be questioned inside the contexts in which uh. your feelings are allowed. Uh. Okay. So to, am I saying this? Am I saying this? I might be saying this a little bit. To, uh, to, to reflect back obliquely. what I'm hearing so yeah. that you can clarify <clears throat> is that to create an industry, say, where talk therapy is way more normalized and available is not the same thing as identifying the structures in which our emotions are repressed and denied in all of the other parts of our lives. Um, I'm saying something more paranoid than that. <laughs> That's true, but I'm actually saying that the, and, I, and I'm, not, I'm not a conspiracy theorist in the sense that I don't believe that there's a, a, a cabal uh, or uh, organizing this. I think this is the inevitable outcome of large structures and um, and power-hungry individuals caught within those structures who are uh, unconsciously coordinating their behavior, not so much that people are getting together in rooms to do it. But for instance, when I go speak about empathy in a company, one thing that is usually taboo is the idea that the employee should, by all rights, put their emotional needs in front of the needs of the company, that that is healthy. So that would be very challenging to say within an organization. So similarly, things that we have trouble saying, like it's like it, it touches this electric fence in the culture, uh, healing should be free. Healing wants to be free. Human connection wants to flow naturally. When we say, oh, you have a problem, you should go talk to somebody about that, we are saying you should outsource your emotion regulation to our prevailing economic solu uh, capitalist solution. And it seems to me that these ways that we have accepted the release of these pressures, these emotional pressures, also serve to keep these structures in place. So it's like we let off a little bit of steam so that we don't do the much, much harder work of saying it is unacceptable, it is morally unacceptable that we live in a world where if you are in emotional pain, the right answer is to pay $100 to somebody to listen to you. That is, that is, un I do not want to live in that world. I will accept that that world is better 
than the world we came for right from right before, where if you're in emotional pain, you should be ashamed of yourself and it's your problem. Ugh, I don't like that world either. Uh -huh. But when we make the step to, you should go talk to somebody for $100 so that you can process your pain, we are also reinforcing a deeply toxic paradigm. That's a good, that's a very clear, that's very clarifying. The idea that, I guess to, to use your word, the paranoia there is that by using transactional therapy is just a pressure release valve to keep the entire system from blowing up as it should. Correct. Mm. That is, that is my, that is my belief. Mm. And, and I, and that doesn't take away from the value that people get out of therapy. I'm not saying don't go to therapy by all means, like go to therapy. But when is the moment, when is the moment when we become conscious of these superstructures that are preventing a deeper and authentic engagement with what is actually happening, the constraints in which we are actually functioning mm. and, and, um, <clears throat> and the prevalence of, um, therapy as the solution to trauma is better than no solution but the ultimate solution to trauma is not therapy it is community and therapy might serve to awaken in us the need like you're saying for genuine community but it might also be preventing us from an awakening to our need for genuine community and ceasing to put up with all of the forms of phony community that our phony culture currently offers us, usually in order to monetize them. Okay. I like that. I, I actually really like what you're getting at here. It's essentially, it sounds to me like, huh, Normalizing therapy sounds like a good idea. Is it, does it have the right intentions right now? Is it manifesting in the way that's actually helpful in the broader, in a broader um, culture? Or is this actually just being utilized as a way to keep the power structures in place by letting off a little bit of the pressure that might otherwise shake them to pieces? Yes. I think that's the right question. And mm. that question is so rarely asked. Okay. So give me, what is this so-called community that mm. would be the earnest antidote? Oh. That question feels really good too. I agree with you that uh, that embedding the idea that if you need somebody to talk to, it costs a hundred bucks an hour is fucked. And that's, you know, I think that all of my relationships, like I would love all of my relationships to be therapeutic. It's something I've been drawing into my life with the kind of people mm -hmm. and the ways I want to be spoken to that I verbalize and, and how I hold space for people. And that gets reciprocated back to me, all those things. So I have some ideas as to the community, but I would love to hear your 
Yeah. Well, I think you're on the right track with wanting every relationship to be therapeutic. I would I would adjust the word therapeutic a little bit, but I like it. I would I my word there would be authentic. Mm. And my experience is that <clears throat> authentic relationships are inherently therapeutic. Mm -hmm. Agreed. And therapeutic relationships aren't inherently authentic. Um, <laughs> yeah, fair enough. So fair enough. to me, the foundation mm. of a healthy relationship, mm. um, which then becomes the foundation of a healthy community, is the intention to engage authentically with what is really going on. And that means that when something is in the air between us, we intend to engage with it. Mm -hmm. That's that's where we start. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean we find the solution. It doesn't mean I know what I know what to do. It just means this is what's really here mm -hmm. and we're going to engage with it mm -hmm. to the best of our ability. Now, that's something that very, 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 very few people even aspire to. And so to map this onto some words that I've used, and I'm actually going to change the first word to authenticity here, to call the relationship authentic, I would say that takes two things. One is sensitivity, that you actually can sense what is between us, right? Because I like that. Like you have to be able to sense it first. And the second thing is it takes courage to speak it because once mm. you sense it, a lot of us sense it, what's happening with our mother-in-law in the room. And we have a choice to sweep it under the rug or be courageous and, 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 uh, how, how did you say it? Like interact with it, to engage with it. Yeah. The, the reason it, it takes sensitivity and courage is because most of us are numb mm -hmm. and I wouldn't say most of us are cowards. That's not true. I think most of us feel unsafe most of the time. Mm. And so it will take courage as long as it's unsafe generally to express what is actually real. Mm. So we need to build communities where sufficiently sensitive people make it safe for themselves and for each other to express what is actually real, which means a lot of awareness around trauma and shame. And when any group of people is oriented around what is actually happening, sensitive to the experiences of others, understanding the basics of how trauma and shame inhibit authentic relating, then it actually just starts to happen all on its own. So when you feel safe and you feel seen, you want to make other people feel safe and seen. It feels so good. And the more people who feel safe and seen, the more people will feel safe and seen. And then another thing starts to happen too, which is when you feel safe and seen, your gifts just start to flow. You don't have to figure out what your purpose is. You don't have to work really, really hard at anything. 
When your needs are met, your gifts flow all on their own. And where your gifts flow, naturally, are to the other members of your community. And then as your gifts flow to them, their gifts flow back to you. And nobody is accounting for it. Nobody is scratching down how many hours David spent attuning to other people's emotions because they understand, and I understand, that that's my gift and it flows naturally from me and I want to offer it if my needs are met. Mm. And in the same way, if somebody really loves cooking and their gift is putting love into food, they don't need to keep track of how much food they made. They will love doing it and I will love eating it and I will be nourished and then I will be more attuned to their emotions and then they will be nourished and on and on and on. What makes this possible fundamentally is the f it must be the fact that your needs are being taken care of. Your needs are being taken care of. Your needs matter and they're being taken care of and they are legitimate. Your need for food, water, shelter, uh, care in case you're sick or get injured, your need to be seen, understood, held, loved, felt, your need for connection with nature, with the cosmos, with the arts, whatever your love is aesthetically, as those needs are taken care of, taken seriously and taken care of, your gifts flow and healthy community happens all on its own. So what one thing that's really in the way of healthy communities right now is the fact that in order to meet our needs, we have to compartmentalize ourselves in order to make sufficient amount of money to meet our needs. Yeah. And even if we have the money so that we don't have to do that work, which only a small fraction of humans do, but even if you are in that small fraction, you know on some level that you're still not safe because you are relying on this completely artificial thing known as money to keep you safe instead of relying on what we're meant to rely on in healthy community which is each other mm. yeah i i hear the perspective that i hear is like the ecology perspective that it's mm -hmm. like that if the water and the soil and the air and the sunshine are all there then the things just grow the gifts just flow it it just happens on its own yes and so healthy community is oriented around that truth mm. that's the truth that we keep coming back to you're yeah. not contributing to this community not because you suck or you're selfish or you're lazy or something's wrong with you you're not contributing to this community because your needs aren't met and our needs are sufficiently met in this community that we have time and space to attune to you and help you meet your needs. Mm. Think about how different that is from you're a jerk, you should go to therapy and work on your narcissism. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's progress. You're a jerk, you should go to therapy and work on your narcissism is progress over our past ways of being where, oh, you're hopeless and I don't care about you. Go to hell. Okay, we've made progress, but we are so far away from you're hurting, you're wounded, we're here, we care, and we trust that if we can make you feel sufficiently loved, seen, and safe,
your gifts will flourish and you will rejoin our community. Hmm. It's like, feels so good to be in that reality. Mm-hmm. And maybe that pain that I was talking about, about the power structure and, and the therapy, it's like, I can't live anymore in a world that doesn't see and aspire to consciously and deliberately the kinds of communities that I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. Like I want us to orient around that now. Mm. I would love that too. <laughs> I would yeah. love that too. I'm so lucky that I find myself in a small community that we have seven houses in this little neighborhood without fences. That's so good. And I think that most of us agree with that, at least intellectually. And I think that's the first step in, Mm. in getting a really embodied sense of what that looks like in your day to day in your behaviors. Yeah. And it's worth noting that we're, we're we're pioneers. So this way of being that I'm describing, it's ancient in a way, of course, it's not, it's not new, but for our nervous systems, in a way it is new. Mm. We are so indoctrinated with the story that we have to earn our keep on this planet from moment one. And if, if you didn't get that, ridiculous story and instead you got the opposite story which is oh my god you're so amazing you're so great you're so you should do whatever you want we'll pay for everything you got indoctrinated with another and i would argue even more painful story yeah which is disconnecting you from everyone else too my heart does bleed for people who grew up with all the wealth and all the privilege in the world and were told they could do anything they didn't learn how they could connect authentically with others. So they have to find their way back. Either one of those stories that you got stuck with, they're both total horseshit. And trying to feel our way into this new one uh, is really, really challenging. It is. It's worth doing though. (laughs) It's worth doing. I agree. Yeah. I think that's a really nice place to end here. I really enjoyed our conversation. Likewise. Super fun. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you, Ari. Okay, you guys, I hope you enjoyed that. Thank you so much, David, for your time and the insight. That was a wonderful conversation. I was pointed in the direction of David by my friend Skylar Brown, who's been on this podcast a number of times talking about empathy and those two are tight. So I, uh, he came highly recommended. Let's just say that. So if you like this show and you want to help it out, give it a rating that could be on Spotify, that could be on iTunes, a review. Those are very helpful. And the most helpful thing you could do is get involved. That would be patreon.com slash airy in the air or consider taking me up on this free fo- this free philosophical coaching practice that I'm offering the link is on my website airyintheair.com under the coaching tab where you can sign up for this free 
philosophical coaching call. It's not a sales call. We're actually going to dig into the things in your life and we are going to clarify what inquiries you are unclear about in the intent of having some clarity. Okay, so I hope you'll take me up on that. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you on the next episode.